0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, teen depression on the rise, sex trafficking prevention ahead of the Super Bowl in Minneapolis, and a gopher volleyball player from Puerto Rico talks about the impact on her home and family after the recent hurricane devastation there. But first... It was a tumultuous week at the state capitol to say the least, and lawmakers aren't even in session. As of this program's deadline, at least two lawmakers, DFL Senator Dan Schoen of Cottage Grove and Republican Representative Tony Cornish of Vernon Center, faced accusations of sexual harassment from several women, including Representative Erin May Quaid. Cornish was removed as chair of the Public Safety Committee, and leaders on both sides of the aisle, including Governor Mark Dayton, were calling on Schoen to resign. DFL Chair Ken Martin was among those calling on Schoen to step down.
1: It's very disturbing, these uh, allegations that have come forward. Uh, And unfortunately, what we're seeing is no place is immune from sexual harassment, even the halls of the state capitol.
0: And Senate Minority Leader Tom Bach said based on the allegations against Schoen.
1: We probably will see a full-blown Ethics Committee investigation where people are uh, subpoenaed, swearing under oath, and there will be some outcome from that. uh, But I
0: just don't think there's something that's going to blow over. As news of the allegations broke, in the Minnesota House, Democrats accused Republican Speaker Kurt Dought of making false statements when he said that he had not received a specific complaint of sexual harassment since he'd been Speaker. A spokeswoman said House Democratic Minority Leader Melissa Hortman last May informed Dought of allegations of inappropriate behavior by a male Republican lawmaker during the 2017 legislative session. Dought responded that he was not made aware of specific complaints and names of those responsible despite repeated requests for information. Where this all leads remains to be seen, but if a statement from Representative Erin May Quaid that she is not alone in experiencing harassment at the Capitol is any indication, this is just the beginning. Switching gears, there were midterm elections in many communities across Minnesota this week, and the two largest, Minneapolis and St. Paul, elected new mayors. MNN's Bill Werner covered the
2: story, and he joins us. It was an historic day in the capital city. That's for certain, Scott. Melvin Carter bested nine other candidates by a wide margin. He becomes the first person of color elected mayor of the city of St. Paul. Carter told supporters at Union Depot he's thrilled, elated, and humbled. He will succeed Chris Coleman, who's running for Minnesota governor. We knew Tuesday night who St. Paul's new mayor would be, but it took a little longer across the river in Minneapolis. Both cities used rad. Choice ballots this election, but Minneapolis had 16 candidates with the top five locked in a tight race. And it wasn't until mid afternoon, the day after the election, that officials announced the city of Lakes' new mayor. Is Councilman Jacob Fry.
3: Our city is in many respects divided right now, whether it's between the cops and the community, or a division between businesses and activists, or you know even division on the DFL party. And uh, I think right now more than ever we need bridge builders, floral, Um people who are willing to listen to one another and hear them out, and recognize that while they may. Share the same goals. They may not share the same strategy in getting there, and that's okay. You know, in fact, it's a good thing. What is your number one job? Is it that police community relations? Is that kind of number one on the agenda? Yeah, you know, I think there, police or... community relations is way up there, and the other big one is affordable housing. You know, we. I believe that Minneapolis should be an affordable place for everyone, and we're we're still a good chunk off from that right now. Um, Rents are rising through the roof, and people are getting displaced from the communities that they know and love. And I think it's incumbent on the city to have the guts to step up and to say, you know what, this is something that matters. Um, we we don't need to live in these segregated neighborhoods, we, we can live together and we can live amongst people that don't look just like ourselves, and that's a damn good thing.
2: That's Mayor-Elect Fry at his election night party. The next day, after clinching victory, he talked more about police-community relations.
3: People want to create the false choice, that we somehow have to choose between accountability on one side and safety on another, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, safety is actually dependent on accountability. People need to be able to trust our police department. Yeah, we've got some work to do on that front. And that's making community policing more than just a catchphrase. That's narrowing the beats of officers so they have the time to engage with the community around them and build out the relationships. Uh, Yes, that's that's establishing accountability measures as well.
2: The mayor-elect has his work cut out for him in that area, and veteran state Senator Jeff Hayden, who represents sections of South Minneapolis, has some advice for the candidate that he supported.
4: I think what Jacob's going to have to do is what this mayor didn't is to actually reach out to all parts of the community. So it has to be a, a bottom-up approach to this issue, and often you have to talk to the people that aren't the ones that are politically savvy or astute. you got to often talk to people who are on the street, and you got to develop a plan. Um, I think that if Jacob Thinks about it in that context where he's starting to talk to the to the folks on the on the street level, if he's talking to the folks that represent those folks, if he's working with his legislative and county partners. Because part of this issue about the police accountability is not only making them accountable, but also making sure that citizens are in a different place so that they're not kind of in the situation. And we don't talk about that a lot. That like If I do something wrong, there's a couple of ways you can arrest me. You can do it with kind of respect, or you can do it with disrespect, right? But we also got to talk about how I not put myself in that position.
2: That's State Senator Jeff Hayden from Minneapolis. Now let's talk for a few minutes about ranked choice voting, which was used to elect the new mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Let's use the City of Lakes as an example, where voters in the booth marked their first, second, and third choices for mayor. Not surprisingly, none of the 16 candidates reached 50% after voters' first choices on ballots were tabulated. So the process of eliminating candidates with the lowest number of votes and then distributing second and third choice votes to other candidates continued until there was a winner. In this case, Jacob Fry, who, by the way, was at the top of the heap after the first round of ballot counting on Tuesday night, even though he didn't have a majority. Carleton College political science professor Stephen Sheer has some reservations about doing elections this way.
1: I think it's pretty difficult for a lot of voters to sort through this. I think it really advantages people who are highly motivated and highly educated because they are able to cut through all of this. For people of lower income, paying less attention to politics, lower education, it's a bigger challenge than the traditional vote-for-one-candidate model
2: or even across economic lines, even, even a person of higher educational status who's just busy and doesn't have the time to, uh, to look to, to research all this, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's very much the case. Because, you see, not only do you have to figure out what candidates you want, you have to figure out in rank order which ones you want. And then you have to figure out, uh, if I vote this person first, that person second, <laughs> am I better off in terms of a final outcome? It's a remarkably complex series of estimations in order to uh, have his or her preference end up being elected.
2: So, um, what do you? What would you put the this chances of the survival of this system long term? I mean, we you know we've been toying around with it, and we've got to try it now on on some major elections. But realistically, do you think that that this concept sticks?
1: Well, there is a movement. Uh By some people in St. Paul to get rid of their ranked choice voting, but uh, once you establish a voting system, it's pretty hard to move and change it, as you can see, because most of our voting systems have been stable for many decades. On the other hand, I think uh, some of the shortcomings of ranked choice voting uh, will not be lost on state lawmakers, and I think there's very little uh, likelihood that this will be adopted at the state level or by any other state.
2: That's Carleton College political science professor Stephen Scheer. Scott? Thank
0: you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Local law enforcement and advocacy groups are shining a light on the problem of sex trafficking ahead of the Super Bowl at U.S. Bank Stadium. The new I Am Priceless prevention campaign aims to reach youth most at
5: risk. I am not alone. I am worthy of respect. I am my own hero and my body belongs to me. I am priceless.
0: I recently spoke with Beth Holger Ambrose, Executive Director at the nonprofit LINK, about the campaign and what LINK does to help at risk youth.
6: The LINK is a 27 year old youth and adult led nonprofit based in North Minneapolis, and we provide programs for youth and young families in three areas juvenile justice alternative programs, housing and homeless youth services, and then shelter, housing, and services for youth who have experienced sex trafficking.
0: And we're talking today, focusing more on the sex trafficking aspect, and and I know that there is an emphasis on awareness of this problem, especially as we head into the Super Bowl, which is going to be here in Minneapolis in February. Tell me a little bit about why we're trying to shine the spotlight on this as we get closer to February.
6: Sure. I think what what is quite amazing about the Super Bowl, and I'm learning more as we go, is that it just provides a much, much wider audience to connect with through multiple campaigns, um, the prevention campaign through the link called I Am Priceless, and Men as Peacemakers campaign don't buy it. Both campaigns are funded by the Women's Foundation, and it provides this great awareness for these prevention and intervention campaigns to really get um, to a wider audience that and the public about what trafficking really is and how to get help and how to prevent it. And so we're utilizing kind of that broader audience and opportunity to get the word out about this.
0: And uh, I'd like to afford you that opportunity here as well. What, what is the message that you're trying to get out through the advertising to the general public?
6: From the link standpoint, from I Am Priceless, which was a um, prevention campaign designed by youth who have been through sex trafficking that are at, in the LINCS programs, um, that campaign is really trying to reach out to younger youth who are most at risk of becoming trafficked. Um between the ages of ten and fourteen to reach out to them and let them know that it's um, it's not okay for someone to exploit or traffic you and that there are places like the link and other resources out there that can help you and so how to get in touch with us and get help so that's one and then the other key message is um, from and I sh- maybe shouldn't speak as much to the Men as Peacemakers campaign. But what I can say is their goal with um, the Don't Buy It project is really to reach out to men and potential buyers of sex to say that it's not a victimless crime, it does harm, and um, basically urging them not to do that, that kind of behavior.
0: In terms of the people who victimize these children, you kind of uh, mentioned this a few moments ago, but are are there particular signs or signals that... uh, kids can look for to know that they're in a potentially dangerous situation that should be red flags for them?
6: Yes. So, first of all, um, youth youth who are being sex trafficked or sexually exploited are most oftentimes youth who are um, vulnerable, and so they're more vulnerable to being recruited. And those types of youth include youth who are experiencing homelessness, youth who have run away from home multiple times, youth who have histories of being sexually or physically abused or neglected in their home. And so those youth are the ones that are at highest risk for becoming exploited. So those are, um, first of all, the youth that we're mainly targeting our prevention messaging to. And then if someone is approaching those young people with promises of helping them with things like, oh, I'll provide a safe place for you to live, um, I'll take care of you, and um, kind of giving a lot. Typically, they're recruited in by, not always, but by promises of getting their basic needs taken care of, um, and then they end up being recruited into then having to do things for those basic needs to be met, if that makes sense. So having to go work at these different parties or at different hotels or at different things, posting ads, Etc. And so there is—it's never as good as it really seems. But if you're, you know, 11 years old or 12 years old or 13, and you're out there on the streets by yourself and no one's taking care of you, then someone that comes in that's saying, "Hey, you can come stay with me. You can come with, you know, come over here. I'll I'll help. I'll take care of you. I'll do all these things for you. I can't believe no one else is done is doing this for you." Then of course I I would totally understand um, how that happens.
0: And, And I would. I would imagine after hearing that it, these vulnerable kids are are in a more of a position to be taken advantage of by these people than say than to be helped by a group like yours. So I would I would think that it would be a, a a real hurdle to get those most potentially vulnerable to know who you are or to reach out for services for help and I'm assuming that that's what the the advertising is sort of meant for as we head into the Super Bowl.
6: Yes. Yep, that is exactly right. And so I think the best way for us to get the word out is through this I Am Priceless prevention campaign. And then we also have a street outreach program. And that's actually how I started my career, too, as a street outreach worker. And so we tend to, because so many youth don't recognize themselves as victims of sexual exploitation or trafficking, we have to go out into the community and try to connect with them, build relationships with them, and provide access to shelter or housing or services. So we definitely do that um, Street Outreach, the I Am Priceless campaign. And then, frankly, the biggest honor I think I or we all have at the link is that
4: we have a lot
6: of um, referrals to us of trafficked youth by peers. So, other youth that are, you know, a lot of times young people who are being trafficked, they might know other youth who are, but they usually do. And so, them to, to reach out, I oftentimes get referrals from youth that are telling other youth, hey, call Beth or Keisha at the link, call the link, they'll help you out with housing or shelter or things like that. Um, they won't press you to do anything you don't want to do. And so that is a huge honor, I think, to have um, youth being referred by other youth. So we get get that happening a lot, too.
0: And while we have this opportunity, Beth, maybe you could uh, share with our listeners information. If anybody out there is in trouble or suspects somebody's in trouble, where do they reach out?
6: Sure. So we have a 24-7 Um, phone that's answered, it's a crisis line, and it's through our West Metro Regional Navigator Program. That phone number is 612-232-5428, and people can text or call that phone number any time of the day. We have an on-call rotating staff that can then answer and help provide support.
0: Thank you to my guest Beth Holger Ambrose, executive director at the nonprofit Link. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new study shows that teen depression is on the rise. MN's Tasha Radel has more.
7: A new study found that from 2005 to 2015, depression rose significantly among Americans aged twelve and older. Young people between the ages of twelve and seventeen experienced a forty-six percent increase in reported depression over this time span. Here to talk about some of the study's highlights is Brad Houghton, a psychologist at Park Nicolet, a section of Health Partners. Brad, what from the study stuck out in your mind?
8: A couple of things. One is the challenge of diagnosing depression. Um, I think we're getting better at it um, and being able to clue into maybe the specifics that um, indicate that somebody has, you know, entered sort of a depressive state. Um, I think it also is a testament to um, maybe pressures within society. Um, you know, you uh, for a lot of reasons, teens are reluctant to say there's an issue. And um, I think this hopes that more people would step forward and say, hey, you know, I do have something going on and I need some help.
7: And, you know, is there a particular age group that we're seeing this uh, in when it comes to teens? Is it the more the tweens and up or is it kind of across the board?
8: Well, I think just qualitatively it's across the board, Um, but I would be, um, and if I remember in the report, they're seeing it in maybe younger, 12 to 15, even 10 to 15, whereas traditionally it was more something you saw 15 to 18, 15 to 19 kind of range. So you're seeing it across the board, but I think it is going younger.
7: And, you know, I know that you don't have a magic eight ball in front of you, but any idea on what some of these contributing factors are that are leading to this? This just seems so young.
8: I think that um, it's easy to strike out and say, well, it's social media, it's this, it's that. And I, I think what we're seeing is a cumulative effect of a lot of different aspects, one which is maybe social media. I think there's a lot of pressure in school these days to perform. Um, you know, um, post-secondary education is expensive, so you got to do it right. Um, you know, pressure to take classes, pressure to do this, pressure to do that. Um, athletics, um, you know, you can't just win. You have to dominate in our society on some, in some fashion. And, um, you know, these all couple into just even the standard pressures of growing up and trying to figure out who I am and how I can relate to the outside world.
7: And uh, for a parent out there listening that, you know, they they might've just heard you visit or talking a little bit and it's ringing a bell that this could be my child, any advice for them?
8: Well, (laughs) being a parent myself, um, I think one, the first step is fostering a relationship with your child, uh, one of openness and being able to communicate, and we all as parents want to have a relationship where the child will come and say anything to us. Um, the reality is, of course, um, that isn't always the case, but if you can foster a solid relationship wherein, you know, if they are feeling like things aren't going well, they could feel strong enough bond to come forward and say, you know, I'm, I have something I need to talk about, and so it's that openness.
7: Well, we're about out of time. Uh, Brad, any final comments today?
8: Well, I would say, um, you know, one of the things is that um, two things. One is symptoms. Um, you know, we think of adult depression as being more of that, you know, loss of energy, loss of appetite, don't want to get out of bed. And that certainly can include, you know, the teen population. And sometimes you get what is an atypical reaction and there actually there's more irritability there's some restlessness and that is also teen depression which can be hard to you know pull apart from just regular teen angst So I think one has to do that, you know, be able to talk.
7: Thanks again to my guest, Brad Houghton, a psychologist at Park Nicollet, a section of Health Partners. Back to you, Scott. Thank
8: you, Tasha.
0: Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As Hurricane Maria was ripping through Puerto Rico last month, there was one very frightened and nervous native living in Minnesota. Golden Gopher volleyball star Dalianlis Rosado grew up in the middle of the island and had to pray for the safety of her family and friends as the hurricane hit her homeland, and she was thousands of miles away in Minnesota. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm
9: sat down with Rosado in her first interview about the ordeal. Let's start by just uh, telling us um, how you were able, if at all, to track what was happening as the hurricane was happening I'm sure you were all these thousands of miles away awfully worried about what was going on were you able to follow it closely as this was all happening
5: yes I was able to follow in social media I was under all the time because I couldn't communicate with my family so I was worried and I was watching all the videos all the news that came out and everything
9: what now can you tell us? I mean, are you able to communicate and talk? Is your family all okay? Give us an update from that standpoint.
5: Yeah, I can um, communicate with them a little bit better now, but still the service is not as great. <laughs> yeah.
9: Are they uh, all safe, and what is the, what are the conditions like now that they're having to deal with on a daily basis?
5: Yeah, um, my family is safe, luckily, um, but the living situation down there is a hard one. And people are going through a lot of things, but thanks a lot. Of my family is okay.
9: What did they tell you? How scary was it for them? I mean, were they? I mean, it had to be very scary.
5: Oh yeah, it was so scary for it was so scary, and this is something that they've never experienced before. So it was a scary moment.
9: How did they handle it? I mean, what did they do to be safe? Did they have to go to a basement? Did they go tr- try to run? How did what did I No,
5: they st- um, they tried to. Saved the house as much as they could, um, the windows and everything, the doors, and um, tried to put as much, as many things as they could inside the house. But, yeah, they stood at my house, and they were okay.
9: When um, How many uh, are in your family? How many live in the house that you grew up in? And then, I mean, I'm sure you had friends and other relatives that were impacted as well.
5: Yeah. Um, I, I have five members in my family, counting me. Um, two sisters and my parents but throughout the hurricane my two of my aunts came and my grandma too so they stay in my house.
9: How hard was that emotionally for you? I mean that, that had to be just a uh, 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 heck of a couple of days.
5: Yeah, um, it was a, a tough, it, it, it was a tough week. It was hard to focus on everything and keeping track with volleyball, school and try to concentrate while in classes but I did it. <laughs>
9: <laughs> How much uh, did you feel like you wanted to go back to help and see what was going on?
5: Oh, so much. I thought about it so many times. I wanted just to be there for them.
9: How much to then locally here with your teammates and your coaching staff and your classmates, were they able to kind of help support you and, and uh, get you through that tough time?
5: Yeah, a lot of people have been supporting me mentally, emotionally, and I appreciate it. A lot of people care about me and my family. and. Um, often asking questions about how, how's your family doing? How's everything back home? Yeah,
9: your hometown. I'm gonna try this. It's uh, Morovis. Morovis. Where exactly is that located on the island?
5: It's in the middle of the island.
9: So it was uh, w- Were there some other areas in the uh, on the island that were even hit harder than than your hometown?
5: Um. Yeah, my hometown was One of them, though.
9: Yeah, it got hit, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, As you um, now look forward, um, the future of that island, I mean, it depends on tourism. Obviously, a lot of folks uh, depend on that. Um, How hopeful are you that uh, this uh, gets? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work to be done, it looks like.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Puerto Rico is not the same, but... We'll race again. <laughs> yeah,
9: exactly. No doubt about
0: it. That's for Volleyball player Dolly onlis Rosado and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN Station.